Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. Economic inequality is back in the debate in American political discourse, which I'm really happy about. Elizabeth Warren, her signature policy proposal, is a wealth tax levied against fortunes of over $50 million, and just recently Bernie Sanders came out with a very similar, actually I think even more, um, aggressive plan. We've been talking about should billionaires exist at all, and what are some programs that will help the least off among us. I'm not going to get into the direct politics of that, although I reference it occasionally. What I want to ask is, as theorists who try to think about this in a more sustained way, how should we approach and how should we think about the issue of economic inequality, including both income inequality and wealth inequality, and perhaps more broadly access to economic resources more generally. So this is a theoretical commentary on how we should think about this in terms of moral and political philosophy. I don't hide my own view, but what I am trying to do here is approach it in a more theoretical sense, and provide a sort of meta-commentary, not on about what we think, though I come down fairly heavily on one side, but about how we should think about it. And I sort of wanted to do this because a lot of the stuff I'm planning to do on this podcast, both solo and interviews, I sort of want to have somewhat something to reference back to. So quite often, now that this podcast represents like quite a large body of work, I'll often just use a solo episode or an interview as a shorthand. I'll say something to the effect of, I think there's an argument for X, and if you want to hear more about that, check out my interview with so-and-so or my episode on blah, blah, blah. Right? And I quite like that, because it allows me to to bring you views without assuming anything, without taking your intelligence for granted, but not to have to make every argument from scratch every time. And I realised I needed something to point to, to reference both my views on income and wealth inequality, and in terms of how I think about it, so that I have this as sort of a reference point um, for arguments that I want to bring you going forward. I, as always, I, I, I can be quite long-winded sometimes. I, I, I anticipated a tight one-hour thing, it wasn't that, but I tried to cover a lot of different ground and a lot of different perspectives on the same thing in this one, so I hope you find this interesting and informative, even if, you know, you're likely going to start and finish with the, a particular view of economic inequality. I hope this provides a way for you to structure and to think about those views in a more self-reflective way. I will say, just as a quick apology, I've had this bloody awful toothache all week, and you might hear me sort of slightly, I try to do my best and to go and to re-record bits um, where it might not have come out right. So if my enunciation isn't great or is even worse than usual, an unkind person might say, I do apologise for that. And also that, that little fact might help explain why so many of the examples I give you in this involve dentistry. That's been what's on my mind and in my head in a literal sense. So let's get straight to it. As always, these podcasts are a lot of work to sort of write out 
and do. They can be 10, 20 hours of work, even just for a solo one. So if you do want to support me in doing this, please sponsor me on Patreon, patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast. If what you're about to listen to is as valuable and enriching as a cup of coffee, consider sponsoring it on that basis. I've generally suggested people give a couple of bucks an episode, and I'm absolutely thrilled and grateful that many have chosen to do that, or even a bit more, but really whatever's right to you. Um, If you're not able to support financially, but still would like to show appreciation, uh, sharing it, forwarding it to people, giving us reviews, um, all of that is also super appreciated. So if you do stick with me through like an hour and a half of me talking about my views on this, um, consider taking an additional minute to support the show in whatever way feels right to you. So that's my little ask at the beginning. I don't do any advertising on this show, by the way. So the only advertising is what you just listened to, which is me saying either give money, share, you know, whatever it is you want to do. But like, um, you'll never have to listen to an advert on this show. And, um, The price of that is um, I hope you can support it in some more direct way. So, with that ask done, let's get to the episode. This is me talking about my views on economic inequality. And I will say, this is me talking for me. These are my views. I'm not trying to, like, give you an analysis of an issue. I'm not trying to explicate the views of a guest. This is me talking for myself after having... um, thought about this for a long time, and then interviewed a lot of people, read their books, whatever, this is sort of where I'm at with this issue, which, like I say, is becoming of increasingly significant political importance, and I think correctly so. So, let's get straight to it. This is me discussing economic inequality. If a particular political policy or practice is right or wrong, do we need to have a 100% confident view of what right or wrong is? So, if we're going to be assessing a particular political reality, for instance, the distribution of economic resources in the United States, in order to do that, do we first have to have a fully developed meta-ethics, of which we are 100% confident, and a fully developed political theory and political ideology of which we are 100% confident. And then, of course, by implication, do we also have to be 100% confident that all rival or conflicting views of meta-ethics, political theory, political ideology, are by implication wrong? Well, on the one hand, you can say, if you can't tell me what, in an ultimate sense, makes something ethical or normative or on the political side free or fair or just if you can't tell me what that is then how can you tell me if this particular thing meets that criteria or not and i ask this question because this is the position i find myself in personally i 
do have an opinion on whether the current distribution of economic resources in the United States is normative. But at the same time, I don't have 100% confidence in my own views on metaethics. I definitely have my views, and there's definitely arguments I lean towards as more credible than others, but as an epistemic matter, which is to just say, what can I know? Not what's ultimately true, but what is the current state of my own knowledge? It would be ridiculous for me to claim 100% confidence in those views. And then, as you try to derive a political theory from that normative metaethical underpinning, it only becomes murkier. So I am increasingly realising I hold multiple and sometimes contradictory political theories in my head at the same time. So I think we have decent reasons, decent epistemic reasons, drawing from certain underpinnings about, you know, what ethics is, to value a sort of progressive liberalism that prizes autonomy, the individual, but both of those within the context of a progressive society. I'm also drawn to a sort of modern neo-republicanism, republicanism in the traditional sense of freedom as non-domination, as argued for by people like Philip Pettit, and I've even gone so far as to sort of develop my own variant of neo-republicanism. Now, in some ways, that will work together with the sort of progressive liberalism I described, and in some ways they might pull apart and reach different conclusions. But I nonetheless find there to be epistemic reasons for believing in both of them. And there's aspects of other ideologies, for instance, something like democratic socialism. I don't completely discount the underlying values claims of that either, and when it comes to their political policy preferences, I'm very sympathetic. Now, if you add all of that together, it just sounds like a mess. So then, am I in any epistemic position in order to assess a question of, say, income inequality? Yes, and I think it's too cautious to say that you have to be 100% confident in the base, 100% confident in the structure you build on that base, uh, in order to have any confidence at all in the sort of conclusions that you might draw from it. And indeed, I think you can take a political question like economic equality. And this is actually, I think, what a mature political theory, a mature process of reaching normative political conclusions should look like. And you can examine it from a number of different perspectives. You can put on one pair of glasses and see how the thing looks. You can put on another pair of glasses and see how the thing looks. And then you can sort of weigh it all up together. You know, which glasses do we have the most confidence in? Which do we not? And what are, they, what are they saying? Are they saying the same thing or different things? And I think when we, when we should be really confident that our normative conclusions are right is not so much when we're really confident that our meta-ethical grounding to those conclusions is right. It's not really, I don't think it's so much as I'm 100% confident in utilitarianism, I'm 100% confident in the process of reasoning that's led me from utilitarianism to a conclusion, therefore 
I'm 100% confident in that conclusion, because I just think as a matter of epistemology, which is merely to say what knowledge is available to us, we are never going to get to that sort of 100% confidence in our whatever our strategy of evaluating something normatively is. But I don't think, as many people do seem to think, that that imperfect epistemology of our foundations necessarily implies a total relativism about our conclusions. I don't think it's the case that it's anyone's guess, and indeed the reason I pick income inequality or wealth inequality, I'm just saying economic inequality in general actually, because I think both wealth and income matter, is that I think this is actually a clear case of where a mature political theory, looking at it from a variety of different starting points, can actually get you to a pretty epistemically confident conclusion. And I'll give away my conclusion at the start, which is, I think we can say with a fairly high degree of epistemic confidence that the current distribution of economic resources in the United States is not good, to put it mildly, in an ethical or a normative sense. And I don't think, actually, that that's just my opinion. I don't think that's merely a personal preference. I do think it's normative. Normative, by the way, means something specific. Normative means norm-establishing. So, you know, if I just say, I like to drink alcohol, that is a value judgment, it's a preference. If I say, everybody ought to drink three pints of beer a day, well, I mean, you can argue about the validity of it, but that is a normative conclusion because it establishes a norm. So I think we can talk about economic inequality in a way that is normative, and we can have a fair degree of epistemic confidence in that normative conclusion. And I, that goes beyond a mere preference, and also goes beyond a best guess. I think we can say that the current state of economic inequality in the United States is normatively undesirable, and I don't think the epistemic assessment of that, that statement is like 50-50. Like, yeah, it might be true. I don't even think it's like 60-40. I think this is like a solid 80-20 or even like 90-10 statement. I think we can have actually a reasonably high degree of confidence in that statement, perhaps more confidence in that statement than we can in any particular statement of meta-ethics or political theory that might underpin it. And my reason for saying that is I think almost whichever pair of spectacles you pick up to look at it through, you find new and compelling reasons to believe in that statement. And for each of these different glasses that we might put on, be it you know utilitarianism, rights theory, virtue ethics, theories of freedom, theories of justice, Whichever pair of glasses we put on, when we really get in and try to understand that pair of glasses, that framework, on its own terms, the reasons people give against economic egalitarianism increasingly don't hold up. Even when assessed, and I think actually especially when assessed, in normative and theoretic frameworks that seem favourable to them. I think actually once you get down to it, 
the sort of arguments about property rights or markets or so on that tend to be offered on on once you get specific and you say okay let's just look at it from a x point of view there's no domain in which those claims hold up on their own terms and indeed i think the trick that those who defend established power and defend the rights of capital over the rights of persons is that they tend to bounce around between the anti-con claims and consequentialist ones. But actually, when you just lock it into a particular train of argument, there's no train of argument, there's no pair of glasses to look at this through, in which those claims are anything other than quite pathetically underwhelming. And I say that, by the way, not really as an ideological partisan. Actually, going through the process of having done this podcast, talk to a lot of people, being forced to think about all of these different structures, pairs of glasses in my metaphor, seriously and rigorously, has made me more convinced of that, not less. I think when I started, I saw something like libertarianism as, yeah, you know, that's a different approach, and I don't think it's right and you know whatever i think now i see it as like i'm i really don't know how anyone who's gone into this in depth could endorse that so let's try on our first pair of glasses shall we that is to say let's take a look at the state of economic inequality in the united states through a particular theoretical and normative lens. And let's let's start with one that I like, which is just utilitarianism. So putting aside, you know, whether or not you buy into utilitarianism or not, or perhaps consequentialism more broadly, you might say, let's just ask, how would a utilitarian assess this question? And if you're not a super fan of utilitarianism, don't worry, we're going to get to different approaches in a second. But this is how I think we should be doing it. Let's look at it from a number of different angles. Well, I think the first thing that strikes me about the normative implications of utilitarianism is it identifies, and I think identifies correctly, the comparatively unsophisticated goal of avoiding pain and suffering. So I'll use the example I always use in this, which is imagine undergoing uh, invasive dental surgery without anaesthetic. I, I did this a while ago, not without anaesthetic, but invasive dental surgery. I actually think I need to go back. I have toothache at the moment, which is like if I'm sounding slightly weird in this video. That's why, so I apologise for that. But like, think about how much that would hurt. What would you give not to have to go through that? What would you give to prevent the person you love most in the world your child, your partner, your parents. What other goods would you trade off not to have them go through that? I wouldn't put my wife through that if you offered me $100, would you? $1,000? Probably not, no, right? Like, what would it take for you to put a loved one through that? Or yourself through that, for that matter. And I think when you think about it that way, you just get a sense, an immediate intuitive sense, of how important preventing pain is relative to other types of goods that we might desire. If you think about any other good that you might seek out in life, other than like really big ones, like being able to decide your life plans, all of the small stuff just falls away in the face of that, and I'll add two more real quick. 
because just as extreme poverty can cause real physical pain, I think there's two other types of suffering that are psychological suffering that are associated with poverty and that are also ethically important and normatively important to try and remedy and avoid wherever possible, and those are fear and humiliation. So fear, again, think about, you know, your person you love most in the world, strapped to that dentist chair, about to have a drill put in their molars, and they're terrified, and they're pleading. What wouldn't you give? Never even mind the pain. What wouldn't you give to alleviate that fear that they're suffering? What other goods wouldn't you trade off? And humiliation, I've talked about a bit, but think about the time, last time you were bullied, last time someone had power over you that you couldn't control, and they rubbed it in your face, and how angry you were. Think about how many times you've revisited those moments. Well, all of those forms of suffering, pain, fear, and humiliation, um, are directly linked to extreme poverty. Think about how much just physical pain is being suffered right now by people who are homeless and have to sleep on either freezing cold or boiling hot streets. Think about how much physical pain is being caused right now by people who have some sort of medical ailment and can't find a doctor because they can't afford it or they don't have medical insurance or anything like that. People who haven't experience poverty directly, I also think don't understand how immobilizingly terrifying it is to, like, really not know how you're going to pay rent, and it just shuts your brain down. It's one of the main things you get out of reading first-hand accounts of extreme poverty, is just the fear that it instills in people, the, the dehabilitating, dehumanizing fear. And finally, humiliation. You know, humiliation can happen in all sorts of different arenas, but think about how much more open to it you are when you're very poor. Oh, you want to claim your welfare check? Well, you have to submit to a drug test. And fuck you, your kids will starve if you don't. Oh, miss, oh, yeah, no, you're here to get little Billy's prescription that he needs for his health. Oh, okay, your copay on that will be $69.95. Oh, your card declined. Do you have another one? right? You know, we talk about what are the moments that make life worth living. These are like the opposite of that, right? These are like the worst parts. Fear, pain, humiliation. The worst things that human beings can endure. And on just a very simple level, it's clear that we would want to avoid for ourselves and our loved ones those things relative to almost any other good. And that if we think about what we should want for society as a whole, we should want less of those things, all other things being equal. And I think it's clear that we could have a heck of a lot less of all of those things simply by taking the economic resources that, say, the bottom fifth of America have and increasing them to the point where they're in the second from the bottom fifth. That's it. Imagine how much less pain there would be, how much less fear, and how much less humiliation. 
and just look at it from the utilitarian point of view. Now, I know a lot of people are sceptical about this aspect of utilitarianism, but just put on the glasses and just buy into the premise, right? And think about it of units of pain. So think about the a, a unit of pain being you strapped to that dentist chair and that drill going into your teeth without anaesthetic. That's one unit. And I think there's probably an equivalent amount you know, it'd be quite high, certainly, and maybe over quite a long period of time, but an equivalent amount of fear or humiliation that might sort of get onto that kind of level, right? Take the amount of those units that are caused by being, or more accurately, by us as a society making collective decisions that mean that people will continue to be in the bottom fifth of America, and stack that all up. That, to the utilitarian, is the ethical imperative of doing something about the distribution of resources. Now, one thing that makes people uncomfortable with utilitarianism is its apparent willingness to sacrifice the few for the many. But notice that's not at all what's happening here. What we, you know, the costs that we would need to bear, so take homelessness, for instance, just house people, right? Like, it might cost some extra money, but just, just house them. The costs to people being very poor, just mail out checks. <laughs> the cost to having, um, you know, giving people health insurance, just pay for it. You know what I mean? So, there are no trolley problems here. This isn't a case of we've got five people strapped to the dentist chair with drills going to go into their teeth, but we can avoid that by taking some other person off the street and putting a drill in their teeth. No, 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 no. We're, not, we're looking at alleviating the worst things that can happen to people and regularly do happen to people. And the trade-off for that is goods that we commonly recognise to be far less ethically significant than preventing those worst-case outcomes. Notice also the bar within this utilitarian framework that the counterexample has to clear. If you think of, like, one unit being strapped to the dentist chair awaiting the drill, how many units are on the line to take some collective measures that would improve the position of, you know, I'm talking about the worst off fifth in America, but, you know, pick your demographic range, right? All of those units are on one side of the scale, right? Now, there may well be costs. There may well be costs, right, of doing that. But those costs would have to outweigh the benefit of avoiding all of those units of pain. What could possibly meet that? And I don't think there's anything that can. So, you know, it's often said capitalism, including some degree of inequality, is a great way of generating wealth. I don't dissent. It can also be said that, you know, there might be disincentive costs. If, you know, people knew that they would be taken care of at the bottom, perhaps they would work less hard, so on and so forth. Now, I think personally, actually, those arguments are a little bit overblown. I actually think there might be significant economic benefits to having a broader and a more expanded middle class. People would have more money to spend, more businesses could start. There's kind of like a Keynesian argument, right? So I actually think it could be quite good economically to do the sorts of things that I'm suggesting. 
But you don't need to make that argument. I think the, from a utilitarian point of view, the ethical imperative is such that even if it were quite economically damaging, we should undertake these actions. It's just a huge amount of the worst things that can happen to people being avoided. And that wouldn't even be to say their lives would necessarily be that comfortable, just that we're taking millions of these sort of worst-case scenarios off the table every single year. Tens of millions, in the case of America, right? Like that, from a utilitarian point of view, it's very difficult to see what should outweigh that. Now, the defender of capital, the defender of existing economic inequality, will say something like, They'll either do one of two things. They'll make a ridiculously epistemically overconfident claim that only the market can deliver certain outcomes, and when you get away from particular rules of free market and whatever, bad things happen. But that's just way, econo- way ep- epistemically overconfident. You don't know that for sure. No one knows that for sure. And where you're getting that from is from some dudes in the 1800s who believed things about science and the world that we now know are empirically false. Bogus. It's also completely empirically falsified, as people on the left regularly point out. There's many European welfare states that in- ensure a relatively high minimum, and they're not undergoing some Venezuela-style collapse. Now, you might say, um, maybe their GDP growth is a little bit slower than ours. Maybe their stock market is a little bit, you know, lower than ours. Maybe they don't have the sort of, like, dynamic financial services that we do. I think from the utilitarian point of view, you can just say, so what? So what? Like, that's, that's again, you know... On the individual level, what wouldn't you do to give your loved one getting that dentist's drill? On the societal level, what, sh- what wouldn't we do to stop that sort of suffering for the least off among us? If the stock market goes down some points. Who cares? It's a trivial cost to pay. So I think we should, on a, you know, a, a morally consequentialist view, we should be willing to stage interventions to help people at the bottom, even if it's economically damaging. And notice, that's not to make an argument about the overall utility of markets. This argument is sort of agnostic as to whether a market economy is best overall. It's just to say that we are justified in intervening to correct market outcomes. Now, What'll happen then is the defender of capital and existing economic inequality will switch tracks. They'll jump out of the utilitarian lane and into the rights theorist's claim. Now, notice that these are two separate arguments, and just notice what they're doing. And they'll say, yes, but you can't just take people's money to do it. Well, that's a claim about property rights, right? That's a deantic constraint, as it's called in the literature. And I just want you to notice in real-world arguments when people do that, they sort of give up on one set of meta-ethics and jump to another. And what I want to try and show in this episode is if you just hold them to one lane, there's actually no lane in which this sort of deference to existing power and capital is justifiable, and it only works when they ping back and forward, right? But To summarise, I think the utilitarian case for remedying 
the suffering of the worst off, even if it means inflicting somewhat moderate burdens on the comparatively affluent, is overwhelming. And I think the barriers that the opponents have to clear within the utilitarian worldview are again overwhelming. The amount of suffering that could be alleviated by doing something, the only conceivable counter-arguments are that that alleviation is not just difficult but impossible, as libertarians sometimes claim, a claim that is far too epistemically overconfident and is flatly contradicted by the facts of the world, or that doing so would cause an amount of suffering equal to or greater than the amount of suffering that we're avoiding. And I don't I don't see how either of those I just I'm not even being like difficult or ideologically stubborn. I don't see how either of those claims could be true. I don't see even what argument could establish those claims. Nonetheless, even though I've said this isn't a trolley problem, we're not sacrificing one group of people to the dentist's chair to um, avoid an, another larger group going on to it, the, the, the libertarian will want to say there is nonetheless a sort of trolley problem here in that we are violating people's rights in order to do that, and that should carry equal normative weight, perhaps overriding normative weight, to any sorts of considerations about welfare. Yes, we should help the worst off, but we should do so voluntarily. People shouldn't be compelled to give up their hard-earned income, right? Something like that. So, I think that's a bit of an intellectually dishonest move to start by making consequentialist claims and then jump over once those claims are just soundly rebutted. But let's follow the libertarian over and look at it through the perspective of claims about rights. And let's start with a really basic question, which rights theorists, at least when they're defending existing capital, never seem to, which is, what is a right? Well, I'll tell you what I don't think it is. I don't think a right is something that ontologically just exists in nature, almost like the law of gravitation or something. It's not a substructure of reality like people imagine God is, or something like that. That's an old-fashioned view of, like, natural rights, as things that are self-evident, as the Constitution says, discoverable by reason. But that's, that's just clearly bogus. And it's just clearly saying, well, it's right because I said it's right, and there's no way to evaluate that if someone else comes along and says, well, I think this is what natural rights says. There's no way to get to the bottom of it. I think... How I would conceptualise rights, and I talked about this a, a little bit greater length with Cecile Farb, and I think how most modern rights theorists would go about thinking of it. Well, I'll give you my formulation. Is rights are a protective capsule. That capsule can be legal, moral, social, political, linguistic even. But a protective capsule designed to put like a force field around those things or attributes which we view as essential for human beings to pursue their interests. So human beings have interests, they have things that they you know, want to accomplish in this world, and rights are sort of a set of protections for the base conditions of them doing that, right? So I think it makes sense on that view that to say that people have a right to a minimal amount of sustenance. 
because that is necessary in order for them to pursue their interests. And so if we want people to be able to pursue their interests, we need to give social and legal and moral protection to them having a certain minimum form of sustenance. And then there's other things. You might say people have a right to an education, they have a right to free speech, so on and so forth, right? And what you're saying is those things are ineliminatable in order for them to function and flourish and lead a life in which they can pursue their interests, where their interests are self-defined. We're not coming to a view about how they you know, what, what life plans they ought to choose. We're simply saying, in order to be in a position to choose life plans, they need these things. Now, this isn't actually my preferred way of looking at it, but let's just look at it through this view. So, in other words, rights are these baseline protections in order for people to pursue their interests, right? Now, notice what the claim that gets bandied about in contemporary discor political discourse is saying. It says, well, yes, it's all well, very well to um, have people have a certain minimum standard of uh, income or sustenance or housing or shelter or whatever it is, but you can't take people's money to do that. So what they're essentially asserting there is not only that people have property rights, but that those property rights are so deep and so far-reaching that they override any other rights claim. In the philosophical literature, this gets termed side constraints. People say, oh, we're not saying you can't pursue welfare, we're just saying that violating property rights is a side constraint. Well, that sounds very reasonable, right? But what it essentially boils down to is saying, if there's ever a conflict of rights claims, and which, by the way, there's going to be conflicts of rights claims, all the time in the real world, because the real world is messy and complicated and the resources we have in it are necessarily scarce. So there's always going to be rights claims that are in conflict, right? Um, you know, should, could, can we take organs from someone who's, you know, irrecoverably in a coma in order to save someone's life? Well, that might be a, a, a right to assistance versus a right to bodily autonomy, right? That there's just a conflict there. Right? Similarly, you know, and we do find ourselves in this position, we might be in a claim in which welfare rights, the rights to sustenance, the rights to shelter, conflict with property rights. And what the claim, either on the unsophisticated end, that you can't just take people's money, or on the more sophisticated phrasing end, that right, property rights act as side constraints amounts to, is that those rights overwhelm totally any other rights claim. And I don't really see what set of arguments could establish that. If rights are just natural rights, so they're just these freestanding things discoverable in nature, well, that sounds completely fucking bogus to me, but like, assuming they are, people invoke those sorts of natural rights in all sorts of ways. A lot of people say, I have a right to life, I have a right to freedom, I have a right to property rights, I have a, I have a, I have a right to not starve to death, right? Um, if we're just asserting them, it's far from clear to me why one, one of those assertions should trump all of the others. If we're thinking about it in a more modest way, as a sort of hardline protection 
of the foundation of interests, then, I mean, it seems to me like you can accommodate property rights within that view, but only as a sort of general Parthian of rights, in which some will sometimes have precedence, some others will sometimes have precedence, and we've all just sort of, like, got to balance them out a bit, and that's not a relativistic view. It's just to say, look, there's numerous different and sometimes conflicting things that human beings need in order to pursue their interests. That just seems like an obviously empirically true statement to me. And so, on the face of it, I'm not sure what to make of this claim, that property rights necessarily override any other rights claim. Um, and let's just consider it on its own terms, because it seems to me like the argument needed in order to establish that claim would have to be very, very powerful. It would have to be at least as powerful as the arguments for any other set of rights claims combined. And let's just quickly look at the arguments that are given in order to establish that claim. And what I think you'll find is that none of them, even on their own terms, even assuming they're more powerful than they are, none of them establish it. So as far as I can see, there's three different ways, and I'll do them very quickly, that one might establish that claim that you can't just take people's property or rights are a side constraint, property rights are a side constraint. In other words, these rights trump any other form of rights. There's autonomy, there's desert, and there's self-ownership. So let's start with autonomy. This is the grounds in which Cecile Fab, who is sort of a person of the left who believes in redistribution and so on, in which she grounds her idea of property rights. She says, well, part of what is sort of foundationally necessary for human beings to pursue their interests is to have a degree of autonomy, is to have control over their life plans. That seems like a defensible claim to me, on the face of it. And part of exercising autonomy is to have a set of things over which you have exclusive control. That is to say, property. That, to me, doesn't sound preposterous, right? But does that argument lead to us establishing property rights over and above all other rights? Well, no, assuredly not, because, like, in order to have that autonomy, how much stuff do you need, right? How much is your autonomy increased by having $50,000 versus $100,000 versus a million dollars, right? I think at a certain point you just hit not only do you hit diminishing marginal returns, but those diminishing marginal returns essentially hit zero, and you're given very little extra autonomy by additional income. What additional income gives you is the power to shape the lives of others, and we can argue if that's even a legitimate power to have. So that will establish property rights to a degree and to a limit, but beyond that limit, it's, it's dubious to me how far that argument will carry you. And the way Cecile Fab puts it, which I think is quite nice, is that property rights exist once the demands of justice are met. So in other words, it is not just for you to hoard wealth that doesn't particularly benefit you and that could be used to stop people starving, but once the demands of justice are met, in other words, once that sort of superfluous wealth has been given away, then what's needed for your autonomy 
is yours, right? And that just seems eminently common sense to me. So the autonomy argument doesn't get you to this hardline view of property rights as inviolable. And I'll call attention to an additional way of thinking, is that if autonomy is necessary as a foundation for human beings to pursue their interests, and that some control of some amount of property is necessary for autonomy, and again, those don't seem prima facie ridiculous claims to me, that would imply, would it not, a quite radical egalitarianism. Because autonomy doesn't say anything about how that property is um, acquired, so the autonomy argument would imply that all people have a right to property, and that all people should be insured a certain minimum. So it seems to me like the, the autonomy argument gets you to a place of ensuring a, a certain flaw in terms of access to economic resources. Now, you can debate what that flaw is, but I think that's what's implied by the argument. Now, people will then say, but it's, it only counts as yours if you earn it, if you deserve it. And that's what I mean by dessert. Dessert is just the name, you know, you think of a cake, right? Um, but dessert is just the name political philosophers give to the idea that it's not just what you have, it's did you earn it. Now, it seems to me that both as used in philosophy and in used in contemporary political discourse, there's actually two different ways in which dessert claims are made. The first is a more simple input-output model, simply to say, if you work this hard, you deserve this much. So both left and right make this. They say, if X, then Y. Um, and notice again that, that that's not unique. So Bernie Sanders says this a lot, right? If you work full-time, you should not live in poverty, right? So that, that is a dessert claim. Um, and all I want to point out about that is I personally don't buy this type of argument. I think the ability to sort of quote-unquote work hard is an accident of birth and genetics and upbringing in society every bit as much as intelligence or even races. I'm not sure particularly why that should determine if someone lives well or starves, but even I, I realise it carries a lot of intuitive force, right? We only want to give resources to people who contribute. I might do a whole episode just on this, because I think this is a bit of a moral myth, but even assuming that there's some validity to it, like I said, again, let's just go through and look at this from every single pair of spectacles we can. We did the utilitarian spectacles, we did the rights theory spectacles, now we're doing specifically sort of rights theory, the rights, you know, property rights uh, spectacles. Um, if it were just doing an input-output model, and we're saying there's some innate moral value to hard work and effort and ingenuity and industry, um, it seems like, to me at least, we need to turn the complete set of outcomes on its head. It seems to me that in terms of the labour, both physical or mental or emotional, the, the lower classes in, in America put in inordinately more than, you know, the top 0.1% who are the most heavily comp compensated. And that's not to say that effort and reward, you know, don't matter at all in people's outcomes. They really do tell in their favour. But if the argument is that those who work hard should be rewarded for it, then, I mean, my God, have you ever done, like, manual labour or even, like, a customer service shift? 
you know? Like, that's really hard. Um, and there's no way that someone who makes their money off, like, financial speculation or something... Now, I'm sure there's some CEOs who work very hard indeed, but I don't know that they're sort of giving more of themselves than the sort of struggling single parent who works two jobs and then does all sorts of domestic and child-rearing labour on top of that. I don't know that they're giving more of their their capacities than that person. So a, just a very simple one-for-one dessert model seems to me quite radically egalitarian in its implications. Again, that's not how I, I think about the world, but if you put on that pair of spectacles, that seems to lead you to Bernie Sanders much faster than it would to Donald Trump, seems to me at least. Now, the second way of thinking about dessert is it's not just input-output, there's an intermediate step, which is how the market values your input, right? So if your labour is, you know, manual labour and the market values that at $8 an hour, then that is what it is worth, and... (sighs) If your labour is that of a CEO, and that's valued at $500 an hour, then that is what it's worth. I just don't see how this way of making... Like, I don't see how that makes sense, because market values change. Right? Like, Marx said it best, I think, actually. He said, to go to the slaughter is always the same sacrifice for the ox but that is no reason for beef to have a constant value. So in other words, if you're working for a company and a decision which in no way reflects a change in your effort or ingenuity or intelligence is made to raise or to lower your pay, a decision that might be made not only without your knowledge but completely without even thinking about the impact on you at all because of like stock prices or something, right? Has your moral worth changed? because of that decision? No, I don't think it has. And that brings us on to the final way in which property rights are justified, which is as self-ownership, which is, in other words, it's about you owning yourself, and therefore it's about you owning the products. This is the Nozak argument, right? And therefore it's about you owning the products of your labour, and it's not about, like, The outcome of a market transaction is inherently just and fair because it's freely consented to by parties who own themselves and own the products of their labour. Now, one, this doesn't make sense to me on its own terms because, like, is the most important thing that we can say about a human being that they own themselves? Just take that claim. That seems that that is the most salient normative attribute of human nature. I don't see what argument could establish that. But even granting it to be true, does it then follow that they own the products of their labour? Well, I mean, maybe? Like, okay, an artist paints a painting, he owns that painting, he gets to decide what to do with it. There's a certain normative force to that, I guess. But that doesn't really capture the reality of how the very wealthy actually acquire their capital in today's economy. Does that apply, for instance, to inherited wealth? Maybe. Does it imply, say, to the um, results of financial speculation, which are just a gamble? Is that the product of your labour? 
Maybe does it apply? Here's one. Does it apply to um, money that you got from a government contract? And this is where. So the self ownership is the most extreme and radical view of defending this idea of property rights as inviolable. And even that doesn't get you to the conclusion that you want it to. Why? Because if a set of holdings is just, if they were acquired through a series of transfers, which in and of themselves were just, the Nozak position, then we can only conclude that the existing set of outcomes, the existing set of holdings, is unjust. Why? Because say you got that money through a government contract, that is, according to the libertarian, stolen goods, right? Taxation is theft. What if um, you have a family fortune that goes back to the days of slavery? What if you know, most wealth in our economy, most economic resources, are not arising through a series of purely libertarian sanctioned transactions. The real world's a lot murkier than this. And Nozak admits this, and he says, yeah, the consequence of this would have to be that assuming self-ownership, assuming an ownership over the fruits of our labour, that most of the holdings in society are unjust, and he says the normative implication of that would be, at the very least, a one-time radical redistribution of wealth. Now, where Nozak differs is he thinks the redistribution should be just one time, and then after that, you know, you stick to strict libertarian transactions, and whatever arises from those transactions is inherently just. But what I want to make the point is, all three of the ways of looking at property rights, which I think in a sen in order of credibility are autonomy, desert, and self-ownership. None of them, if you just follow that track by itself, none of them get you where you want to go, right? So we've done rights in detail, let's move on to the final way of looking at things from a sort of meta-ethical perspective, which is virtue ethics. Um, in other words, to ask not what are the outcomes, not what are the rules it's following, but what type of person is conducting these acts. Now, virtue ethics is the one I'm least familiar with, and I'll spend least time on, but it seems to me, again, that an argument which tried to establish that the existing set of, you know, the existing economic inequality, the existing set of holdings is just and fair and normative, um, really struggles when it comes to virtue ethics. So again, right, you know, if the um, Elizabeth Warren argument where she sort of says, you know, the billionaire did not make the roads that the, that the goods he was selling travelled on, he, you know, didn't choose to have his own education and so on, this sort of like it takes a family view of making a billionaire. I think that is a true statement within the track, within the, the framework, with looking at the world through this pair of glasses of dessert. Um, I think that's true. And then Bernie Sanders also has, um, in seeming contrast to that, a virtue ethics view. He says, what does it say about us as a society that there are some people who have billions and that there are some who are starving? That's a claim about virtue ethics, right? And what I want to note here is some people want to take, you know, Warren pushing back as she did in the last debate against these dessert claims, and Sanders making these claims from the point of view of virtue ethics as kind of like in contrast, and I actually don't see it. These are different 
glasses through which you can look at the same thing and arrive at a similar conclusion, and I think that's how we should be looking at it, actually. But just to stay with the sort of Sanders or AOC side, that there's actually just kind of something wrong with both the existence of billionaires and the desire to be a billionaire. So Joe Biden says, you know, yes, we should have a more progressive taxation code or whatever, but he says, let's not try and punish billionaires. They're not bad people. I think there's something about, I don't know that he said it overtly, but what Sanders is trying to say is that actually they are bad people. That actually if you have wealth, not like wealth in your company, but just personal wealth that could save the lives of thousands and you're sort of using it to have a yacht or something, there actually is a sense in which we can judge you as a person there. Now, that, to my mind, and I'm not a virtue ethicist, and I don't really know how virtue ethicists go about structuring their arguments other than to just sort of appeal to intuition and say, well, do we think this person is a good person? Um, It seems to me like Bernie Sanders definitely has the right side of that argument in that, yeah, the desire to hold more wealth than you could ever possibly spend is kind of a morally perverse desire and it does speak to the type of person who would have that desire and it does speak to the type of society that would organize itself around fulfilling that desire there's something perverse here in terms of our character individually and collectively now what the libertarian will do and how they defend it from a virtue ethicist point of view is they jump back to the start again and they say yes you know greed is good greed might seem unseemly at first but we get the best social outcomes for it in other words they've just jumped right back again to the morally consequentialist point of view and what i'm saying is if you just lock the argument down to a single track there's no track in which it can defend itself there's no pair of glasses through which it makes sense so we've already dealt with the morally consequentialist side of it. Let's just stay within virtue ethics, irrespective of, like, you know, the overall societal system and does it produce good consequences. Is the desire to have that much wealth a sign of good character? I'd put it to you that it isn't. And is a society which exalts that and bows down before it, and I've said many times, we treat homeless people as if they're a little bit less than human. We treat the CEO class, and they clearly expect to be treated, as a little bit more than human, a little bit elevated above us. What does that say about the character of our society? Nothing good, right? So those are the three big ways of thinking about it in terms of meta-ethics. There's also political concepts, justice, freedom, fairness, equality, and so on. Just quickly, I'll just do freedom, because freedom is where, you know, the defenders of capital, the defenders of existing economic inequality want to go. And they have a particular idea of freedom, which is individual control over property rights. But is that the best way of thinking about freedom? I actually don't think that there's anything to it. If you just say, well, definitionally freedom is this, therefore, I mean, that's fine. But you can say definitionally freedom is something else. And I think the arguments that it's something else are much stronger.
and I'll talk about just two of them, the idea that freedom involves autonomy and the idea that freedom involves non-domination. And I've explored both of these at length, so I won't go through the argument here, but if you want to hear arguments about freedom as non-domination, I suggest you check out my conversations with Philip Pettit, as well as my series I did on Machiavelli and my solo episode on humiliation. And if you want to look at ideas of freedom as autonomy, then I suggest you look at my libertarianism series. But both of those, it seems to me, if we are to allow any role in our what we think freedom is to freedom involving autonomy, then I think in order to lead an autonomous life, like I said with property rights, you do need a certain minimum. Beyond that, you can't be starving and be autonomous, right? You can't be dying of something that's preventable if you only had the funds and be autonomous. Likewise, with non-domination, if in order to be free, you, it's not just that you're, you're left alone, it's that you're not living under the thumb of anyone else, then the concentrations of corporate power that we have in our society are not just threats to equality, they're threats to freedom. And that's a reason, and it's a reason that has been coming out in these sort of um, presidential debates where we are getting more overtly left-wing views, is that having people who own more wealth than, like, the bottom 10% of Americans, is a threat to freedom, because that is dominating power that is unchecked and unconstrained. So, you know, we're talking, like, is Mark Zuckerberg, the Facebook um, CEO or whatever he is, going to interfere in our elections? Well, he might or he might not, right? The troubling question is, if he decided to, what could we do to stop him? That should be a question that troubles us. So it's both that the people at the very bottom have their freedom limited by their lack of economic resources, and also that the people at the very top are themselves a threat to freedom by the unilateral control over resources that they have. Now, you can sort of pass out whether individuality or autonomy or... Um, uh, you know, non-domination, what's the most sort of salient meaning of freedom? I'd say, you know, we can look at it through different lenses, but what the libertarian is committed to saying again, and through any one of these lenses, just notice the burden of proof that they themselves set up for. They have to say that the only meaning of freedom is individual control over property rights and any others are illegitimate. You know, me, I can actually say there's multiple meanings of freedom, and, you know, we can sort of look at the world through different ways, but they never give any argument for that being the only way we can look at freedom. It's just true by definition, and everything else has to be false by definition. But I don't think most philosophers have that view of what freedom is, and more than that, I don't think most people do. Whether overtly or subconsciously, most people in America, according to public opinion polling, do not feel free. Right? We're living in a society in which the definition of freedom that's given to us by the powerful and by capital is that we are free, or most of us are, and yet we don't feel it. And so the libertarian has to say, not only is my definition right, but if you don't feel free, you are wrong to feel that way. In other words, there can be no 
element of freedom that's subjective. It's purely about meeting an objective definition. Well, again, that seems to me to be an unsustainable claim, that at least part of being free is feeling free. Surely, right? Another political concept through which you could look at this through the lens of is justice. I'm actually going to skip that here because justice has been overdone and we're getting over on time, but I, I think the punchline is justice is the same. Looking at it through that pair of glasses, we see a very, very strong reason to move towards a more egalitarian society and surprisingly weak reasons not to. And I think that's been a consistent theme throughout this. Now, where does that get us? Well, I think one way of thinking about all of this is as a sort of moral uncertainty type project in the same way that Will McCaskill advocates. In the sort of, we look at the probability of something being right, the goodness we get from it, and we sort of add up all the different options, right? So if there's a 25% chance that utilitarianism is right, and that gives us five units of goodness, but there's, you know, so on and so forth. You just add it all up. Well, that might be a bit overly formal, but I think it works here. Now, what I want to point out about this, and why I think the argument is so powerful, is that what I talked about with Will McCaskill is when the different arguments pull in different directions, right? In other words, when a consequentialist view seems to lean one way, but a deantic view seems to lean the other. Sort of, how do you make sense of that when you're not sure how much one of them is right and the other is wrong? What I find interesting about this is it seems to me that any structured approach to thinking about what is normative seems to get you to the same conclusion. Now, there might be a sort of pure libertarianism that sort of starts from a foundational point of like a hard line sort of free will, builds out to a meta-ethics based on that, and then just directly follows through to political principles. Sure. So I'm not saying like every single way of looking at this gets you to the same thing. But what I'm saying is, out of the big ones, out of the big meta-ethical ones, out of the big sort of political frames that we look at the world, when you when you just lock it in to one track, to one pair of glasses, then you find very, very, very strong arguments that we should move our society in uh, a more egalitarian direction. And I think if you sort the the, the it's greater than the sum of its parts, right? Because, you know, the confidence we might have in any individual one of those arguments, right, might be limited. But I think, to me, it's like, well, they're not all wrong, right? Like, I think some are more true than others, and you might disagree with me. Like, I tend to weight the utilitarian concerns more heavily, but you might tend to weight the deantic concerns or the political precepts more heavily. But, like... You know, we actually don't, we not only don't have to settle which one is right, we don't even have to settle the relative salience, right? We can agree on where we're going without, um, without even agreeing, like, I might think libertarianism, sorry, utilitarianism is 60% true, you might think it's 10% true, we can actually still agree on the conclusion. So it seems to me that that conclusion 
it rests on foundations more secure than any of the ultimate arguments that it derives from. Now, what you don't get from that is an end point. A lot of political thinking is about where ultimate should we be, what is the ideal standard of justice in rules, and a lot of the thinking that I think is preoccupying the left right now is is the ultimate vision one of Elizabeth Warren's sort of heavily regulated compassionate capitalism, or is it Bernie Sanders' democratic socialism? Is it this or is it that? And what I want to point out here is all of these arguments pull in the same way, but they won't quite end in the same place, right? I think where utilitarianism will take you and where rights theory will take you is for now, they'll both push in the same direction. But I think utilitarianism would probably end with us getting closer to a point of, like, pure equality, whereas rights theory might end with us at a place much more egalitarian than we are now, but with still moderate inequality, right? So what I want to ask is how important is that? And I would argue when all of these different approaches agree that we're a long way away from where we need to be and that... All of them agree that, that we have to travel at least some considerable distance away from where we are now and in the same direction. It doesn't matter that much. You know, once we get to the point where we have the income and wealth distribution of Sweden or Denmark, then we can have the debate of, like, do we want to stop here or do we want to keep on going? Do we want to have a more equal capitalism or do we want to be full-on democratic socialist? For now, it doesn't matter. And um, specifically on the issue of um, economic inequality, um, Aramatia Sen has a great metaphor where he's like, imagine you're being locked in a steam room and the temperature's going up and up and up and it's painful and it's hot and the dial's going up and up and up and there's someone on the outside who says, okay, I'll turn it down. What do you want me to turn it down to? And you're like, I don't know, just turn it down. And they say, I won't turn it down until you tell me exactly what the optimal calibration is. Well, that's just silly. Human beings are reactive. I, and I think that metaphor shows we know much more clearly what direction we want to be going in than what the ultimate result will be. And I think that's how we should think about economic equality, in that wherever you're at, however you weight which one of those arguments is more powerful, they are all pulling in the same direction for now, and that is the morally urgent task, and that is the task to which we should be committing ourselves in the medium run.